I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. Today we're taping live at the Miami Book Fair. This event will be aired later as an episode of our show, which you can find by searching for fiction slash non slash fiction on your favorite podcast app. And we're thrilled to have one of our favorite guests back on the show, Jeff Vandermeer. He's here to talk about his newest novel, not even out yet, Dead Astronauts, coming out December 3rd, and we're excited that this time he's joined by his wife, Anne, to discuss the latest anthology they've edited together, the big, and we mean big, book of classic fantasy. (laughs) Anne Vandermeer is an acquiring editor for Tor.com and Weird Fiction Review, and is the editor-in-residence for Shared Worlds. She's won a Hugo Award, a World Fantasy Award, and a British Fantasy Award for co-editing The Weird, a compendium of strange and dark stories. Other projects have included Best American Fantasy, three steampunk anthologies, and a humor book, The Kosher Guide to Imaginary Animals. Her latest anthologies include The Time Traveler's Almanac, Sisters of the Revolution, an anthology of feminist speculative fiction, The Bestiary, and The Big Book of Science Fiction. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I I grew up here in Miami, so it's so nice to come back to my hometown and be here for this event. Thank you. And the New York Times bestselling writer Jeff Vandermeer has been called the weird Thoreau. Are we really saying that? I guess we're doing that. <laughs> by, uh, by the New Yorker for his engagement with ecological issues. Vandermeer's prior work includes the novel Born and the Southern Reach trilogy, which has been translated into 35 languages. The first book of that trilogy, Annihilation, was made into a film, which he spoke about during his last appearance on the Fiction Nonfiction podcast. That book won both the Nebula and Shirley Jackson, won Nebula and Shirley Jackson Awards. His nonfiction has appeared in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, among others. 
A three-time winner of the World Fantasy Award, his forthcoming novel is the first in the Adventures of the Jonathan Lambshead series from FSG Kids. Jeff, welcome once more to the show. Thank you very much. And I'd just like to say that, in my opinion, Thoreau is the weird Thoreau, but I'll take it. <laughs> uh, all right. I'm excited to talk. You know what I want to do is have the audience applaud these two excellent authors real quickly. We have it on tape. I'm excited to talk to both of you about this anthology, which is an 850-page treat. You can also hurt people with it. It's the big book of classic fantasy. I get the big, but the classic is more complicated. In the introduction, you write, classic fantasy, then, is the naive state of the unreal during which writers largely did not self-identify their work as fantasy during a transitional period that also loosely corresponds to the transition in history from religion to science and from agrarian rural societies to industrialized urban societies. This period also saw a marked devaluation of fantasy as for children, for children culminating in an association with the low cultural status of the pulp magazines. So, Anne, can you say a bit more about what extent you were working like against the historical understandings of what fantasy is supposed to be and toward your own notion of what it could be? Well, the thing about fantasy is that people have always told stories. And the earliest stories were always fantasy stories. And there was never a, this divide between fantasy and realistic. It was always just, here's a story. Here's a great story. And so the writers that were writing during that time period, and we're talking about classic, we're talking about works up through 1945. So it's pre-1945. And people were just writing stories. So that's why when you take a look at the big book of classic fantasy, you're going to see the Brothers Grimm right next to Vladimir Nabokov because everyone was writing those kinds of stories at one time or another. They might not have only been writing fantasy. And the other thing is when you take a look at a lot of those early so-called children's fairy tales, some of them were pretty adult, as you will see later on today. Uh, and Jeff, in that same vein, one of the things that you say knits all of the stories together is what you call a rate of fae, which I loved reading about. Um, can you define fae for our audience and tell us why it was a driving factor here? Sure. And, and, and first of all, you have to realize that we um, studied a lot of past anthologies and realized that um, there were a lot of theories that anthologists came up with and just like acted like they'd always been around. Um, so we thought if we did the same thing, it'd be fine. <laughs> so, uh, so for example, there's the idea that fantasy started with Gilgamesh. Um, which was something that just seemed like too long a timeline for us uh, to deal with uh, and also seemed a little bit um, iffy. Uh, so we started thinking about how other kinds of fiction that we'd anthologized had been categorized. So you have like the sense of wonder that's associated with science fiction for a big book of science fiction. And for the weird, you have something that seems to be more or less a, a subset of horror uh, that deals explicitly with an unknown that doesn't have a, a, a cultural underpinning, like uh, not vampires, because we bring all these associations in with them, but a genuine encounter with an unknown that may actually be kind of beautiful. So we thought, well, what is fantasy? You know, break down. It doesn't. There's no sense of wonder associated with fantasy. That that's a term associated with science fiction. And so I thought the rate of fae, because of those early strange fairy tales, sometimes very cross-cultural. Uh, where they, they're sometimes for children, but there's this encounter with this fantastical unknown that is, uh, you know, strange and beautiful, but also maybe a little terrifying uh, and wild. And so my thought was that we would try to include those stories with the greatest uh, rate of fae, the strangest, wildest stories from a period where 
fantasy was not, you know, until like the 20s thought of as an actual term uh, or a, a, a separate genre. So the book includes writers who are commonly understood to be fantasy writers like Tolkien and L. Frank Baum, but just as it makes arguments about certain other kinds of stories and writers also being fantasy, in one way or another, it takes a stance against Anglocentrism and includes black and native writers, for example, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, Nora, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Morning Dove, and about half the stories in this volume, and I love this, are in translation, which is so awesome. And you even commissioned some new translations. And can you tell us about the detective work that you did to find new stories and to decide which old versions deserved new I mean, talents? It's an incredibly inclusive book. I mean, it's you really can tell amazing. that there was like a real effort made to do that. Well, translations, translated fiction has always been near and dear to my heart. And it's been very important to Jeff and I to be as inclusive as possible. And we've been very fortunate over the years to come across so many wonderful writers all over the world who are not only just writers, but also translators. And because they have known us for a long time and know the kind of work that we like, we were able to reach out to them and ask for recommendations of stories that they knew and loved or could even research for us and give us some ideas of what's out there that the English reading public does not yet know about. And to me, that was what was so thrilling. I was very, very excited to bring some work. For example, there's this one very long story, I guess you could call it novella, from Korea, which has never been translated before in English. And the writer who wrote it is anonymous because they didn't even keep names during that time period. But this is an amazing fantasy story and really speaks to what fantasy was and what storytelling was in Korea during that time period. And this is in the 1800s. So we were very fortunate to come across Min Soo Kang and learn about his work. And he was the one that, that recommended this particular story to translate for us. So we, those are the types of things that happened. We came across another translator who was doing translations from Yiddish. And he told us about a writer named Dernister, whose short fiction had never been translated before. And the story that he translated for us is this surreal Bible story. I don't know how else to explain it, but to think about this story being written, I think it was in the late 30s or early 40s, and it just blows my mind to think about that story being written in Yiddish, and you read it today and you're like, wow. So to me, it was very important to be able to do that. And of course, the, the um, indigenous writers, I wanted to make sure that we included them because storytelling is so universal, and I wanted to show all those different perspectives. And I think also, um, we couldn't have done this book 10 years ago because our network of translators is so large now, and they know our taste, we know their taste, so they can pitch us something with a couple of paragraphs and a synopsis, and 99% of the time, we take it, um, even if it's something that's never been translated into English before, and we also can house or find a home for those things we don't use, so there's usually a very small risk, but it even comes out of spaces you wouldn't expect, like our Russian translator, Ekaterina Sidia, told us about these spiritualists in Russia who used fiction as their propaganda. So they would put out broadsheets like uh, in the, the late uh, uh, 1800s uh, and early 20th century, uh, these elaborate stories that were about the supernatural that had never been thought of as fiction and never been uh, anthologized because no one knew to look for them. So she translated one of those uh, for, for it. It's a story about an ensorcelled violin. It's an amazing story, but it's never been put truly in a fiction context before. So when we were talking about this uh, show, Jeff, you mentioned this weird story by the Brothers Grimm called Hans My Hedgehog. <laughs> yes. Which you have 
committed to saying is the favorite of yours? <laughs> we both have, yes. Um, in fact, the <laughs> anthology is not uh, is dedicated to Hans my Hedgehog. <laughs> and um, you want to tell us why? Um, because you know you're looking at like the classics, and you're like you don't want to reprint the Grimm's Red Riding Hood, so you want to find something a bit offbeat, and so. First of all, I thought, oh, this is a cute story about a hedgehog, and we're considering it and reading it over and over again. And then I finally realized, this is batshit. This is, <laughs> this is completely nuts. And, um, and yet it has a kind of earnest, like, straight-faced demeanor to it that makes you buy into the idea that, that it's not, that the things that are happening in it are completely normal. And so even now, when I read it, I burst out laughing, which uh, was one reason that Anne's reading it, not me, because I just dissolve into laughter over the story, uh, which is probably too much buildup for the audience. But... Um, um, but it's just like, you know, that's the other thing about fantasy is that, you know, if you buy into things like, you know, talking animals and how cute they are and everything, you can, you can buy into a lot of strange stuff before you realize you're really, really out in the woods, you know? <laughs> I think this, so do you want to? I think this story is a perfect example of the type of fiction that we were looking for because the fantasy stories that we're looking for, strange and, and wondrous things happen and yet... Life just goes on and people don't even consider it. They just, this is the way it is. And so this, this story gives you a glimpse of that. Once upon a time, there was a peasant who had money and land enough, but as rich as he was, there was still something missing from his happiness. He had no children with his wife. Often when he went to the city with the other peasants, they would mock him and ask him why he had no children. He finally became angry and when he returned home, he said, I will have a child, even if it's a hedgehog. Then his wife had a baby, and the top half was a hedgehog, and the bottom half was a boy. When she saw the baby, she was horrified and said, now see what you've wished upon us? The man said it cannot be helped, the boy must be baptized, but we cannot ask anyone to be his godfather. The woman said, and the only name that we can give him is Hans, my hedgehog. When he, was, when he was baptized, the pastor said, because of his quills, he cannot be given an ordinary bed. So they put a little straw behind the stove and laid him in it. And he could not drink from his mother, for he would have stuck her with his quills. He lay there behind the stove for eight years. And his father grew tired of him and thought, if only he would die. But he did not die. He just lay there. Now, it happened that there was a fair in the city and the peasant wanted to go. He asked his wife what he should bring her. A little meat, some bread rolls, and things for the household, she said. And then he asked the servant girl and she wanted a pair of slippers and some fancy stockings. Finally, he also said, Hans, my hedgehog, what would you like? Father, he said, bring me some bagpipes. <laughs> when the peasant returned home, he gave his wife what he brought for her, meat and bread rolls. Then he gave the servant girl the slippers and fancy stockings. And finally, he went behind the stove and gave Hans my Hedgehog the bagpipes. When Hans my Hedgehog had them, he said, Father, go to the blacksmiths and have my cock rooster shod, and I will ride away and never again come back. The father was happy to get rid of him, so he had his rooster shod, and when it was done, Hans, my hedgehog, climbed on it and rode away. He took pigs and donkeys with him to tend in the forest. In the forest, the rooster flew into a tall tree with him. There he sat and watched over the donkeys and the pigs. 
He sat there for years until finally the herd had grown large. His father knew nothing about him. While sitting in the tree, he played his bagpipes and made beautiful music. There's a lot more to that story. <laughs> but do you understand the beauty and the wonder and the horror and all the things that are in that story, just that little tiny piece? That's why we had to dedicate the book to Hans, my hedgehog. So that's going into development with Disney? Is that going to be on Disney Plus? No, even better. So it was, it was on TV in 1987. You can go on the Hans My Hedgehog internet spiral that I did. Um, and it's really weird. And so it was an episode of Jim Henson's The Storyteller. So I read the preface to the story. And then I, of course, went immediately to see what on earth did this look like? I shouldn't have done that before bed. Because <laughs> Hans My Hedgehog is... he's. Faye, in the best in the best way, very Faye. And it was funny because the whole time I was reading the anthology, I kept thinking of um, Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Um, and so it, of course, made perfect sense that Jim Henson would have adapted Hans My Hedgehog, um, who is this amazing animal character. And, and I know one thing that the two of you said, there's a lot of animal stories in the book. And this is not the usual animal fable. I feel like it's, it's almost the fiction answer to the improv game of asking ridiculous questions and then you have to say yes to everything. Oh, but what if the hedgehog has bag, bagpipes? Of course, go on, go on with the story. And so at every turn, it just goes somewhere that I don't expect. Yeah, and, and actually, I loved it so much and, and that I actually, in my young adult novel coming out next year, have an army of 7,000 hedgehogs riding roosters, but they're like giant. Um, and that was actually very complex to make uh, plausible, but yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry my facial expression can't be on the show. The roosters are giant? The hedgehogs are giant? They're all giant? They're all, they're all giant. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> Whitney, do you <laughs> I think it's all good. I don't know what your problems are. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> They're not problems as much as an inarticulable question, but I mean, what is it that you think makes an animal story awesome? Well, I think the thing about animal stories and the reasons why we connect with them is that we share this planet with them, and yet they're so strange and alien to us. I mean, have you ever really looked at an aardvark? Seriously. <laughs> So we ascribe all of these human qualities to animals and they don't behave like humans. They behave like the animals that they are. And yet we still are just in, in wonder about what they're thinking, what they're doing, why they're doing this, why they're doing that. It reminds me of this episode of The Kids in the Hall that I once saw years ago where one of the comedians comes on stage with a Jack Russell Terrier and he, he talks about the mammal with whom I live a lie. And I just thought that was the most perfect way of describing what it's like when I think about how I live in a house with a cat, you know, and, I, I, and people have these connections with animals and they want to write stories about them because that's how we connect with the world by telling stories. And I, and I think that we tried very hard to use the animal stories because we had so much material that we could choose from uh, that dated well, uh, that actually were before their time in terms of rejecting kind of like the Disney stereotype for the most part. So some of them are strange because they're actually, you know, better uh, mimicry of animal behavior than your normal story because we're used to animals in fairy tales kind of acting like humans half the time. I just think you need to start adding the some classic fail videos with pets from YouTube. That's what my son likes. Right. 
Yeah, and there's, I, I also have to mention that there's a giant carrot uh, chasing an onion uh, in my YA, too. So it's not just <laughs> animals. Yeah. It's not just animals, yeah. also vegetables. Yeah, this was all influenced by the book, yeah. All right, so we also are lucky to be able to talk about your new novel, Dead Astronauts. This is really kind of the kickoff of your tour, says Twitter. Yeah. And um, since it's going to be published on December 3rd, we're going to avoid spoilers, which will not be easy. But maybe the best way to set things up, Jeff, would be to have you read from the book's opening which identifies three of the main characters. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I'm about to go out on my Deader Than Dead tour, uh, which uh, <laughs> since it's December, I thought that would like uh, provide good context. If no one shows up, it's like I intended it. Um, basically, Dead Astronauts uh, is a novel that starts from this core of these three rebels, Chen, uh, Moss, and Grayson, uh, who are fighting this company across various versions of Earth. And in fact, uh, you kind of know which version you're in because in the margin, little Vs with a number after them will appear in various places. And uh, unlike someone who got the arc and said, um, is this like a printer's mark? Uh, no, no, <laughs> it's actually a clue. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, so they, they are basically trying across all these realities and they're not quite human, all of them. And some of them have been changed by the company and that's why they're seeking revenge. Um, and I chose just an anonymous company because I feel like the situation we're in right now with regard to being preyed upon by corporations, it does feel like just simply a company with a capital C. Um, but then the novel fragments out from that, from the, from the consequences of what happens in that section. It's like the universe kind of fractures and then you get perspectives of other characters, uh, some of whom are animals, uh, that are mentioned in this first section. And this is where they've come back again, once again, to try once again to to basically destroy this company, and you get a sense of what they face. Grayson, the restless one, the leader, if leader they had, took point, and her blank eye was her gun, her hand, her gun, and no aim ever truer. But all three had restless, dangerous thoughts. All three had minds that reeled from the imprint of strange constellations and distant coordinates. Hell lay behind them on that map, blood and murder and betrayal. And because the three were home and because they strode toward the city, which was everywhere the property of the company, the enemy came for them. Apparitions sprang from the sand, dust devils formed like sand, but not sand that took the shape of vast monsters with glittering eyes, biomatter with nanites instead of intent, to bring down upon them punishment for their rebellion. A digging gap-jawed leviathan, a creature with many wings, grown more corporeal with each staggering step, so that what might seem ghost matter or star matter gathered with a great sowing sigh and a low guttural groan, as it became strong where once it had been weak. Only Moss ever found them sympathetic, and that was because she was closer to them in her flesh than to Grayson or to Chen, phosphorescent, dripping a mist of near weightless biomass and emerald and turquoise torrents. The brine hit the three in a wave, the taste of them paleomesozoic, worthy of the respect one gave to old bones in a museum. But these monsters had been made to battle some other enemy than the three. And when the molecules of the three met those of the defenders, the defenses fell away and became again like sand. Sometimes this was not the case. 
Sometimes when they were not the three, but just the one or the two or in some other guise and thus weakened, the sentinels devoured them, ripped their flesh and cracked their bones, rendered their corpses down to dust and then quarantined the dust and salted it as if knowing how dangerous even the DNA of ghosts could be. Here in this city, there came a second wave in the form of a giant lizard, and Grayson dealt with the surprise with a leap and a swipe of her hand, for there appeared a blade at the end of her hand and then a red line across a scaly throat. This lizard erupting from the sand was not biotech, but natural bread and thus natural dead in disposition. Yet it hit the hid the preternatural, for one limb of the lizard made as if to flee into the sky and became a wing that might flap and soar, a wing turning into a full-fledged bird that might report back to the company. But for Chen, who whipped his left arm up toward the heavens and allowed that part of him that identified his hand to leave him to spin up to the wing as a sharp spinning star and to intercept the flying thing and to shatter it to pieces which fell like shards of green glass or some brittle candy, while the star of his hovering hand shone golden there in the great empty sky like a beacon. The monsters were gone. They had passed the first trial. Yet it was different than before, more difficult. Each of them felt that in some hard to define way. They will track us. They will always track us. The duck with the broken wing, already here. Sometimes it took longer, but true. The duck with a broken wing watched their approach from a dusty pool in which a dark smudge was all that remained of water. More reptilian than duck, saurian, teeth, semblance of a duck, but only from afar. Up close, all that registered was monster. Sometimes they called it the dark bird. Thank you very much. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you create such a scary duck? How you created it and maybe why you created it? Because I mean, I'm a Donald Duck fan and a Daffy Duck fan and maybe even a Make Way for Ducklings fan, but I don't think I've ever read a story that had a terrifying villain duck. Well, I mean, you just mentioned some of the creepiest ducks in existence. Um, uh, <laughs> um, well, you know, I like the idea of camouflage and disguise, and so uh, it's, uh, this duck is alluded to in my prior novel, Born. Um, and, and, you know, there are certain animals that will uh, pretend to be uh, injured in order to lure prey in. And, and so I like this idea of this thing that was not what it appeared to be. And I like the challenge of making something that seemed innocuous or even friendly uh, not so. And so soon after this, there's a whole section that just describes the duck devouring various animals. Um, and if you read that and you still think a duck is great, then, you know, this is a comic novel, but I don't think that's what happens. <laughs> um, so that's really where it came from. And I also like the idea of subverting in the novel in certain places are like cultural expectations of animals, like what we project onto them and exactly what you're talking about and kind of like explode those. Um, and I, so I paid great attention to the detail of creating that uh, in order to, to tr try to pull that off. Yeah, I mean, I tell students to choose against type all the time when yeah. they're writing about people, right. right? Make the trucker, you know, enjoy romantic fiction, you know, or something like that. But I'd never thought about it in terms of animals. But when I was reading the book, like the, that I realized, and, up, and, and in your prior work, that you try to work against type with animals, I think. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, th I think that, and this is uh, something that you find if, when it's well rendered in any kind of fiction. Um, there's a writer I love, last name Williams, I can't remember her first name now, who writes short stories where in the backdrop, Joy Williams, uh, where in the backdrop, because she is big on ecology, any time an animal appears, it is actually doing the thing that it would do in that circumstance. And so she's very aware of the fact that animals in the backdrop should not be like furniture or something inert, that they can uh, you know, have some kind of power even if they're not the center of the story. And so I think about that a lot. My prior novel, Born, if you, if you look at the backdrop, is you can read an entirely different story involving the little foxes that, that run through it. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely something that I think about, and you know, and I, I apply it when I teach uh, because often someone will have an animal as the center point of the story, and they haven't really thought through exactly what you're talking about. So Anne, there are plenty of sentient talking animals in the Big Book of Classic Fantasy, as we just <laughs> learned. Uh, I mean, I'm, is well, hands is you know, between, yeah. right? Um, you and Jeff also published the Kosher Guide to Imaginary Animals, a totally normal book for people to publish. Um, why do animals play such a huge role? So you should be able to answer this question between the two of you. Why do animals play such a huge role in fantasy and science fiction? And the second part of this is by comparison, and maybe I'm wrong about this, so if you think I'm wrong, that's fine. Why do they play such a comparatively small role in quote unquote literary fiction, especially in terms of like having a leading role? Well, I, I not really sure why they might not be in literary fiction as much, but it might be that the more modern fiction that's realistic is more focused on humans and therefore doesn't spread out into the wider world of the animals. And, and our connection to animals, again, is it's a universal thing. We, we share the world with them. Increasingly, we try to connect with them because we're so removed from nature now, more so than we were 100 years ago. So I think it's become more and more important to us. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people spend hundreds of millions of dollars on their on their pets, and you see, you know, these handheld dogs, people walking around that they think they're their children, and and we have this connection with the animals, and we we do want to read stories about them and and learn more about them, and um, as far as literary fiction is concerned, I I don't really I can't really think of anything that's come out recently that does focus on that, except in the case of a relationship that a human has with an animal. But, you know, I would say that uh, this was a little perplexing to me because, you know, I just read for the National Book Awards for fiction, and that meant I read like 500 books, and there was actually a fair amount of, of non-realist fiction mixed in with that, uh, but all across the board. Um, uh, what, one thing I was shocked by, and I think it's actually kind of related to this, because I feel like animals are the ambassadors of this, because animals are really about habitat, about biomass, and, uh, and key to a lot of things that are key to our existence. You could read the vast majority of those books, and there's amazing fiction. And if that was your only source of knowledge about the world, you would not know that climate crisis exists. And I found that actually kind of disturbing, um, because it should be seeping in around the edges, and, and it should be manifesting in our attitudes towards animals and, and how we foreground uh, certain things and put other things in the backdrop. I mean, that's why I feel like fantasy and science fiction actually, and this has been true in your work, but are making us pay attention to animals in ways that literary fiction does not and has ignored in the same way that it ignores climate change in certain, and has, if you look back over time, like, look, this book, Dead Astronauts, is really a lot about the way animals think about people, right, in parts of it. And um, you don't see that perspective in literary fiction. I feel like it's a missing perspective that you're partly filling in there. 
You know, I don't know, because I also read a lot in translation, and I read a lot of different traditions, and I would say that that's not necessarily true out of okay, like good. a U.S. realist tradition. Well, I'm a U.S.-centric focused um, in reading. That's my problem. So I don't know that I would necessarily buy into that that way. I think that... Um, but I, I do think, regardless, that, that, that fiction that doesn't, if it doesn't seep in around the edges in the next 10 years, it's going to kind of become irrelevant. And, and if you're writing something that's meant to be a serious you know, thing about contemporary issues, it may become a problem not to at least be wrestling with it around the edges, I think. I mean, I guess I would say for myself, I, just, I was thinking about it. I wrote a war novel. The war in Iraq really affected animals. You know, and I didn't even think about that for one second that that would be something that I would write about. I felt like that was a gap in my sort of thinking. Well, it could also be incredibly uh, problematic to foreground that in a novel about yeah, Iraq. Yeah, it would be hard. Um, so, so I don't know. I think it's also you know each novelist has their own strengths too. So it's not like I think everyone should have to deal with right. these issues. Um, I think that's that's problematic too. So. To go back to Dot Astronauts um, and you're reading from it, in the novel we've got Grayson, Chen, and Moss, and they show up outside the city, which is run by the company, which you mentioned after a terrible disaster has happened, and they're on a mission. What can you tell us about the mission? How far down that road can we go? Um, well, well, I think that what I wanted to, dis to try to explore in this novel was um, the idea of failure as a kind of success because I think we use capitalist metrics uh, on our activism in ways that are very unhelpful. And I think there are so quote unquote failures that actually move the, the needle, so to speak, in a way that you might not see the effects right away, but you see them down the road. And I see so many people feeling defeated, even though I feel like they have done that. Um, so I wanted to, to have this mission that's incredibly difficult because the company is everywhere across all of these different Earths kind of the way that, that companies have tentacles across our one world and, uh, and, and, and depict them trying in various different ways to find the weak point, to find the thing, the key that will um, unlock that. And without going into too much detail, they find out there is no one key, there is no one thing. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's why I say the novel kind of fragments because once they reach the end, of what they're dealing with, uh, the novel opens up into kind of the consequences uh, of what they were dealing with, both in the past and, and in the future of, of that section. So, so when, in the, I want to have a question for you, because I thought when you were introducing the book and talking about it, you talked about the versions. I assumed that that meant time, but I'm not sure that I'm right about that. Um, you know, I think that there's things you put in where they can be both very specific, but they don't have to be read the same way. So sure, that, that could work as well. Um, I think what it was was liberating for me, too, because I wanted to write a novel that was about different versions of the characters. I didn't want to have to worry about the continuity aspects of that. And so by writing across different versions of Earth, that allowed me to have the freedom to kind of like show different versions of these characters, which is similar to like how you show a character over time either changing or, you know, one day they don't get their coffee and they act completely different, make different decisions. Um, and so I find that aspect uh, kind of interesting, kind of literalizing that in terms of um, time and space and, and, and that kind of uh, landscape, so to speak. I mean, we've been talking a lot about animals, but time is also something that shows up in your work a lot. Time passes differently in Area X than it does in the outside world, if I'm remembering all that stuff yes. properly. Mm -hmm. yeah. So maybe could you just talk a little bit about how you think about time in, in your fiction writing? Well, I love, I think, 
I think fiction is a great, and poetry is too, it has this amazing ability to stretch out and to lengthen a moment or to compress a century into a paragraph. One of the most amazing paragraphs I ever read was by Nabokov in Ben Sinister, where he's in the foreground of this character who's suddenly trapped on a bridge because he tried to go to one country and they rejected him, but the country he came from won't let him back in. So he's trapped on this bridge and he's thinking about what he's looking at. And he's thinking about what it was like back in Paleolithic times. And this, in one paragraph, he manages to capture all of this all of this, this, this emotion that the character is feeling and go back in time and then come back into the present. And it was a kind of time travel. So I think of books as always being time traveling books in a sense. Um, and that that's one of the major and wonderful things that we can do as novelists is, is to, to, to take advantage of that. So um, literalizing it like this just allows you to create different effects that are actually things that you do in contemporary realism. Um, they're just not as noticeable. Uh, and so, so here, time, you know, time also works in the fact that a character has a poem from another character, but they don't read it until five years later. Um, so you know, there's all kinds of time travel that occurs in the novel, and some of it is real time travel, and some of it isn't. So. Um. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think about time as an editor. I mean, when you are editing science fiction and fantasy, right, the sort of elasticity of time is something that people, people have played with that, as, as you mentioned, um, you know, from the history of storytelling. So what is it that makes for a fresh take on that when you're acquiring fiction or editing fiction? Well, it's really interesting because Jeff and I did do a massive anthology called The Time Traveler's Almanac. And when I was done doing that anthology, I thought, I'm so done with time travel, I can't do it anymore. However, shortly after that, I read a story at a workshop that a writer had written that was a time travel story. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to buy this story. And, and I think what it is, is that when we talk about time travel and moving through time, it allows us, in a sense, to be nostalgic for things that, that happy times in the past, but it also allows us to think about a do-over. You know, how sometimes you have these stories in your head and you're replaying them over and over again. I wish I'd done this differently. I wish I'd done this differently. So I think that, that time travel does allow you to do that. And when you read fiction, you get so engrossed in the lives of your characters and the, and the things that are going on around them and, and what they're facing that you forget where you are and when you are. And that, to me, is a measure of a really good story, whether it's a fantasy story, a realistic story, a science fiction story, a horror story. When the reader reads it and everything else around them disappears, then I know you've done your job as a writer. You've written a successful story. Thank you. That's a great, really clear definition, which I'm looking forward to discussing with my own students. Um, and yeah, just thinking about also um, when you're talking about you, you mentioned before biotech and natural, right? You, when you were reading, and I was thinking about that as, I mean, even that is a kind of time, it's like time travel concretized as characters or as animals. Um, and I mean, even there, there's like-, like they're speeding up evolution, which is a kind of time, right, exa right, that's exactly yeah. what I mean. And so, right, the idea that genetic engineering or biotech is a way of trying to have time um, go the way you want it to. And, and that also plays a crucial role in this book, and it's not the first time that um, in, death, in Dead Astronauts, and it's not the first time that that subject has appeared in your work, and in, in, of course it's also in Born. and I'm wondering how close 
you think we are to creating the kinds of creatures that you describe in this book where, I mean, one of the pleasures of it for me, I think, is seeing these things that I think of as the most natural things and then juxtaposed right next to them are things that are the what feels to me like the least natural things. And it's, it's a kind of uncanny valley there. Well, I, I think one reason I've, there's two reasons why I've turned to talking about you know, bioengineered creatures, basically. One is that it, like you said, it's something that is actually happening at an ever more accelerated rate. It's, it's also something that gives me as a novelist a kind of a scaffolding to investigate non-human minds because when I think about actually like writing about a real fox, what I would put on the pages would be incomprehensible as a novel, <laughs> right. you know, trying to get into that point of view. So I need that like that perspective or that distance where I'm saying, oh, this, was, this is a human altered animal that has been given an approximation of a human consciousness in some cases, and that allows me to think about writing from the perspective of that animal. Um, with regard to biotech, I'm writing to, about it because I, I think it's actually a really fraught subject. I mean, we have uh, commodified so many things that we are moving ahead with this idea of creating creatures um, and, and, and people joyfully, scientists joyfully saying, oh, someday a kindergartner will be able to create a creature in, in, in their class, <laughs> you know, without any kind of consideration of what this means ethically and with what seems like a lot of backsliding ethically in terms of animal testing and everything else. That makes me think of that um, scene from the Toy Story where the mean kid has made all these horrible creatures that he tortures. I mean, that's exactly what would happen if Right. If you can imagine you, your that. average middle schooler, I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I already pity the frogs and, and toads they encounter, but, but the uh, in general. But uh, so, so, so that seems to me to be fertile territory for exploring, and also exploring the fact that once we do that whole scale, there's going to be a large part of it that's be beyond our control in some way, and that's not like a mad scientist thing or a or a, a warning thing because I really think some of this stuff will integrate itself into the ecosystem. But, uh, but I think it's something that, again, kind of grabs my imagination and I feel like um, isn't being really um, like explored by a lot of novelists. So I tend to usually gravitate towards those things and then abandon things when they've been mined out and go somewhere else. And so right now, this is something that I find uh, very uh, interesting. At one point in the book, the duck, We've been discussing the dark bird. I prefer to call it the dark bird. The dark <laughs> bird, for the obvious reasons. The dark bird <laughs> says, "Do you even wonder what it would be like not to live in the world of humans?" I feel like the book is asking this question generally at many points, and there's a section toward the end that's told. I, I think from the fox's collective point of view. Am I wrong? Am I right about that? Uh, from the fox's point of view. Yeah, yeah. and that tries to answer that in some ways. I wondered if you could read to us from that. Sure, and um, uh, you know, there's parts of this book that are basically prose poetry, and there's parts of these, this book that are very non-traditional narrative because I think that that helped me in terms of uh, thinking about the non-human. And, and the fox, each section, each of the three sections, uh, there's basically five pages of repetition, and part of that is, is the situation it finds itself in being co-opted by the company. The second part is basically a listing of all the ways that people have killed foxes over the ages uh, that goes on for six pages because I think the repetition kind of drives it home. And in fact, Alton Brown the other day was telling me that he read that section aloud and with each repetition, it just kind of, it kind of opened up something new in thinking about what you're reading. Uh, but I'm going to read the joy part, <laughs> the third section. The part you're talking about is really scary. And uh, yeah, we did ask you to read the joy part. Yeah, I figured that would be a better, <laughs> better note for now. Um, if I'm on the tour and things are going badly, they're going to get all the, the anger. Um, <laughs> but um, here we go. 
We lived in joy, the joy of living without interference, without persecution, without unnatural threat. The joy of running, the joy of digging, the joy of hunting earthworms through the dirt, the joy of the wind against fur, the joy of muddy paws, the joy of sleeping next to each other, the joy of climbing trees, the joy of swimming in streams, the joy of mating and raising children, the joy of digging burrows, the joy of playing in meadows, the joy of snapping at fireflies at dusk, the joy of napping on smooth stones, on moss, on beds of fern, the joy of the warmth on fur. We lived in joy, the joy of living without interference, without persecution, without unnatural threat. The joy of running, the joy of digging, the joy of hunting earthworms through the dirt, the joy of the wind against fur, the joy of muddy paws, the joy of sleeping next to each other, the joy of climbing trees, the joy of swimming in streams, the joy of mating and raising children, the joy of digging burrows, the joy of playing in meadows, the joy of snapping at fireflies at dusk, the joy of napping on smooth stones, on moss, on beds of ferns, the joy of warmth on fur. But in the end, joy cannot fend off evil. Joy can only remind you of why you fight. Thank you. I did want to ask about writing that uh, section about all of the things that humans do to animals. Was there an inspiration for that? When did you realize you were going to write that section? Because it seems so, it's a perfect part of the book, but I, you know, it takes thinking of it first to make it perfect. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of repetition that you find in non-standard narrative. Um, and I studied experimental, you know, fiction for a long time. I was formerly experimental as a young writer. Um, I was also a poet as a young writer, which used, uh, and poets use repetition differently. Uh, and uh, throughout the novel, and I wrote the Fox uh, part uh, fairly late, in part because I was still thinking through, you know, I'd met this uh, extreme, this, uh, this environmentalism class that was like, we want more direct literature. And I was like, how do I do that without being didactic? Um, and, and then, it, and the answer was both two, twofold, be more lyrical and, and lean into the didactic and the repetition does that, but then the repetition, especially I think after the fifth or sixth time, where there begin to be parentheticals that kind of uh, uh, aberrate the, uh, the pattern, um, the, 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 that, that reaches that effect. So, so really it's all that, and then the fact that in the other sections I was using um, repetition in other ways, uh, because there's characters that reappear in different form and think the same thought. Um, so I was already using repetition in a certain way to convey things. Um, and then that just seemed the natural element of it, especially because the fox, at the end of the day, is both very sad and very angry. Um, and that emphasis seemed to work. I wonder, you, you have animals. I mean, it's in, your, it's in your bios, the bits that we didn't get to. And what is your life with nature like? Well, we moved into this new house on a ravine. It's still only uh, 10 minutes from the heart of Tallahassee, but if you've seen my Twitter feed, you'll know we have, that on your average day, you'll go out and you'll see a possum or a raccoon, or if I'm lucky, the armadillos digging away uh, in, in the bottom of the ravine. And uh, I just, um, we're very close to it right now. And, and it's, it's funny because I was writing the fox sections, I was writing some of these sections, um, you know, after we moved into the new house, uh, where there was this more direct, uh, connection every day with individual animals. 
And it wasn't something that I had before because I would hike a lot and you would see an animal, you would observe the animal, but you didn't see the same thing over and over again. And the old house just simply didn't have any windows. So, um, you know, even though we had some wildlife out there, we didn't see it. So it's definitely changed my perspective. And I was writing part of this book um, after we moved to the new house. And I think it made, it made a difference. And I, I don't know what it's like for Anne. So in the morning when <laughs> we get up. She called Farmer Jeff. The, but. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff, the first thing Jeff does when he gets up in the morning is he goes outside and checks all the bird feeders. So that's like his focus is taking care of all the outside animals. And the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I have to feed Neo. Neo is our cat. He's uh, last cat standing. We used to have four, and he's the last one. And um, Neo gets a scrambled egg every day. <laughs> yes, I do make him a scrambled egg every day. But not only do I make him a scrambled egg every day, I sing to him and talk to him the entire time I'm making it to build up the excitement for when he's going to get the egg. <laughs> and when I travel and Jeff has to make the egg, he does not do that. And I Neo does do not like song. the egg. I just can't. It's a different kind of repetition. So Jeff does not make the egg the right way that I make the I, egg. It's the same egg. But to be fair, I can barely reach the, the bird feeders to feed the birds, so I know I'm not feeding the birds the way that Jeff feeds the birds. Um, I have a question for you guys about collaboration. And I may have to, we're going to say, if Sugi, our co-host, just walks off stage, it's because she has to go to the airport. So don't worry. Um, <laughs> You know, editing, you've edited a lot of these anthologies together. You're a couple writers. Okay, I'm not even going to ask the question. I have this great story about collaboration because Jeff and I do work on, on these anthologies a lot, and he gets very excited and has fantastic uh -oh. ideas and likes it. So when we were working on this particular anthology, Jeff came to me and said, Anne, I really want to have a story by Salvador Dali in this book. And, and the way that we divide our, our work is that I work on all the permissions. So, and, and he does not touch the permissions. I do the permissions, all the administrative stuff. And, and I said, okay, okay, it's gonna be really difficult to get permission to do a Salvador Dali story, but if you find the right story, I will do the work. I will go through all the hoops to get the story. So we have a lot of books, hundreds and thousands of books. We have a lot of books. He comes up to me so excited with a book of surrealist uh, work hands it to me and says, I found the story, I found the story. And I open it up to the story that he gave me. I'm reading it, and I look at it. I go to Jeff, and I said, we can't publish the story. He goes, why not? What's wrong with it? And he goes, well, first of all, it's not fiction. It's an essay. And second of all, it's an ode to his penis. So no. So we do not have Salvador Dali, sadly, in this book for that reason. And I, could, he, I said, if you find another story, I will, I will consider it, but this, it's not Look, this one. It was in my defense, and there is no defense, but I was reading it very the big fast. big book of penis could be coming next. <laughs> I was reading it very fast. And it was very convoluted. Um, you know, it was almost legalese to some degree. So in my defense, I did not even see that word in there, but I did read it very fast. And she, and she was correct. So I do tend to be the advanced guard bright shiny objects and some of them turn out to be duds um, and uh, we do actually have a policy where each person can override the other on one story uh, if it comes down to it so there may be one story that Anne loved and one that I loved that the other person hated um, there was a story that I thought was a great dragon story because it turned out it's just about a lizard that they con tourists into seeing in this cave and I thought that was great but she was right it had no fantasy element in it um, but we were very well together I mean we 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 will argue on occasion but we we've been together 30 plus years so we have this big reservoir of trust 
you know, um, and uh, you know, maybe sometimes she'll threaten to shave my eyebrows while I'm asleep, <laughs> which is a little disconcerting, <laughs> but, but in general, we get along very well with these things. When you look back at your collaboration, I mean, this is, um, you know, you've edited m many anthologies together at this point. This, is a, this collaboration has a long history. How is it the first time you collaborated? What was that like? I sense a juicy story. Well, the first time, that's how we came up with the rules. Because the first time, because the first time it was like, oh my gosh, it was terrible. I mean, there was a lot of fighting and screaming and going on and on, this and that and the other, and throwing of things. No, there was. But then what we ended up doing is we ended up um, coming up with the rules where um, we each could have a story. If, if there was one story that could not be vetoed and one, and one story that could be vetoed, it was that type of thing. We made up the rules of how we were going to approach each anthology. But the thing is, we've been doing it so long, and, and we, we get along so well. And, and, and like Jeff said, it's, it's, it's a matter of trust, and we also respect our talents. I respect everything that he can do, and he respects what I do. And they do overlap. We do have different, different skills. I'm also wondering about in editing all of these anthologies, you have to think about the order of the stories. And it isn't necessarily just a purely chronological business in here. Well, now, with, with these, with the, the big books, they all were chronological. With some of the others we did, like Time Travel and Femspec and Beast Jerry and some, well, Beast Jerry was in alphabetical order. But, you know, they're, they're, we do think about that very closely and, and we do work on that. I consider putting together the table of contents and the way that you do that to be an art form of itself. That's one of the ways that I'm able to infuse a project with my own creativity because I cannot write. So I do think it's really important on how you, how you do that because I consider the, the reader is going to be reading it from the beginning and all the way through. Although a book like this, they might skip around and that's perfectly fine. I mean, the permissions are also the thing that sometimes determines story order, because sometimes you don't get a story. Like, um, we tried to get a story uh, for The Weird by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but the, it was The Old Man with Enormous Wings, I think was the title of it. And uh, the ebook rights were owned by a Dutch film company, and we emailed them with an offer of like, you know, $300, $400, which is pretty normal. And, uh, and they came back with 60,000 euros as the uh, reprint rights. And I said, uh, that seems a little, uh, hi, can you come down at all? And the response, I'm not kidding, from this professional firm was in all caps, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and uh, luckily, they, we monitored very closely, and they no longer own the ebook rights, so in the big book of modern fantasy, we finally got that story. Um, so sometimes there's these, the TOC in our head is not quite the TOC that winds up on the page. So, Jeff and Ann, thanks for being on the show. We want to encourage our readers, our listeners, to go out and pick up the big book of classic fantasy and Dead Astronauts, which by the time this book, this podcast airs, will be on sale. <laughs> and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. We want to thank our producer interns, Gilbert Randolph and Chloe Syme, who are MFA students at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. If you value discussions like this one, take a couple seconds and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find our show. 
We'll post links to the book we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast, and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading from Miami.